are back. Thanks so much for tuning in today. This is The Podluck, and I am your host, Megan Westra. My apologies for a couple weeks of break in the midst of this first season again. Um, I had my second round of book edits, and then I just spent last week on the Ruby Woo pilgrimage with Freedom Road, um, hosted or led by Lisa Sharon Harper, who was our first guest of this season. Um, so great time uh, with a bunch of women of faith um, working our way through different sites in um, the history of women's rights and civil rights. Um, at some point I may do like a, a special episode on that, like the podluck, the dessert table or something. So something not within this first season and the theme, but just something kind of one off, you know, like a big heaping pile of banana pudding or piece of chocolate pie or whatever. Anyway, um, I haven't quite processed last week enough to do that yet, but uh, if that sounds like something you'd be into, podluck, the dessert table, something different uh, than the usual season, then uh hit me on Twitter and let me know if that sounds good. But anyway, my apologies for the break. We are back today, though, and that's the important part. So thanks for tuning in and for joining us. Uh, Today, our guest is David Congdon. He is the Acquisitions Editor in Politics, Law, and U.S. History at the University Press of Kansas and an Adjunct Instructor in Theology at the University of Dubuque Theological Seminary. Uh, David is the author of several books, including The God Who Saves, which is the book of his that I have read. Um, It's a dogmatic sketch. Um, He tweets regularly at D.W. Congdon on topics related to theology, racial politics, and American evangelicalism. Um, I will put the link to his Twitter and his work um, in the show notes, as always. Um, The God Who Saves is an incredible book. not for the faint of heart. It's very dense. Um, I will I will give you fair warning. Um, David is brilliant. Um, and so I'm super excited to have him here on the podluck today, dishing up his best thoughts. And so I'm going to roll tape on, um, on his answer to the question, which he's given a whole lot of thought to, um, the question of first season. What does it mean to be saved? David, go ahead and take it away. It would be fair to say I've spent my entire career as a theologian wrestling with the question, what does it mean to be saved? My first year in seminary, I published a series on my blog called Why I Am a Universalist. I published an article answering the same question a few years later. My dissertation research on Rudolf Bultmann centered around salvation as the key to understanding both his theology and his divergence from Karl Barth. In 2016, I published The God Who Saves, which is an entire monograph addressing what I think salvation is and how I would reconstruct theology accordingly. Today, I am working on a volume about the different versions of universalism. The point is, it would be easy enough to answer this question. I have no shortage of material with which to work. And yet, I often find myself wanting to start over. By the time I finished The God Who Saves, I felt compelled to go back 
and rewrite the book. Because I began as a Christian universalist, and I ended as a post-Christian existentialist. The question I ask myself now is, what does it mean to be saved if one no longer believes in an afterlife, or even a traditional personal God? I will come back to that in a moment, but there is another factor in my changing views about salvation, and that has to do with my research on the connection between Christian theologies of salvation and the practice of settler colonialism, forged by a farrago of ecclesiastical and imperial power. The question of salvation has served a double-edged purpose in much of Christian history. First, it has been dematerialized to be a matter of the destiny of one's eternal soul. And thus salvation has been able to coincide with the enslavement and slaughter of bodies, specifically indigenous and non-white, non-Anglo-Saxon bodies. A spiritualized and eternalized salvation has thus served to protect the violent, genocidal practices of the state. But second, and ironically, salvation has been enculturated as a process whereby one conforms to the norms of a given cultural framework. So even while salvation has been spiritualized and separated from our bodies, it has at the same time encoded norms and practices that our bodies are supposed to adopt and, and assimilate in order to count as saved. A classic example of this internal contradiction is Max Weber's argument regarding the origins of the Protestant work ethic, according to which a Calvinist doctrine of election, which is explicitly determined unilaterally by God and thus has no connection to what we do, nevertheless gives rise to an exceptional work ethic as an attempt on the part of Protestants to find some assurance that they are indeed among the elect. Whether Weber's thesis holds up is irrelevant here. My point is simply that the doctrine of salvation in the history of European settler colonialism has functioned in an analogously incoherent way, both to render our bodies disposable and controllable by the state, and to conform our bodies to the normative cultural vision defined by the ecclesiastical powers and authorities. White heteropatriarchal Christianity has thus simultaneously says, first, you are saved regardless of what you do with your bodies, because they want to dismiss the biblical injunctions against wealth and violence. And second, you can only be truly saved if your bodies look and act a certain way, because the straight white men in power want to control the bodies of those they see as hierarchically under their authority. It has been my challenge to construct a theology of salvation that counters these assumptions, norms, and practices, while doing so in a way that is authentic to an existential understanding of what it means to be human. Constructing such a theology involves reconstructing the entire edifice of theology. To ask what salvation means is, in effect, to ask what faith means, to ask what it means to speak of God, to ask what the purpose of religion as such is. We can begin by summarizing the three elements of the traditional picture of salvation as follows. First, salvation is ultimately and temporally about our eternal existence with God after death. Second, 
Salvation is ontologically about the standing of our soul before God. And third, salvation is practically about our conformity to the norms of an ecclesial culture that stands in visible opposition to other cultures. To put this another way, salvation is traditionally eternalized, dematerialized or spiritualized, and enculturalized. These form the negative criteria for my attempt to rethink salvation. And by contrast to these traditional characteristics, I argue that salvation should be historicized, rematerialized, or despiritualized, and deculturalized. It is important to say a few words here about why I start with the, with the negative criteria and develop the positive criteria in response. So much traditional theology has been toxic precisely because it has been so confident in what it thinks it must say that it has never bothered to ask what it must not say. When I was a more traditional theologian, especially one influenced by Karl Barth, I dismissed the apophatic negative approach to theology as a form of ideological objectification whereby humans constrain what God speaks and does according to the limits of our experience. At the time, I would say instead that the negative has to be defined by the positive and not the other way around. Bart used this kind of asymmetrical relationship between the divine and the human, between eternity and history, to prevent the co-optation of God for the violent purposes of empire. And this is surely something to preserve. But as I have pointed out in my work, following others who have done so before me, this asymmetry was always something of an illusion. We never have direct access to God, so every articulation of the positive is always already permeated by our historical experience. This fact led me to develop what I call a correlationist or dialectical approach to theology. To speak of God is at the same time to speak of ourselves. All theology is biography, and our experience is never irrelevant or subordinate to the theological task. What this means is we never have the positive content of theology as a confident possession. If there is a positive content, it is something we are constantly in a process of discovering, a content with which we are in permanent dialogue, always moving back and forth between the situation in which we are located and the depths of our, exist- of our existence that we associate with the word God. But I would go further still today and say that the positive content of theology, what we might call revelation, using more traditional terminology, is not separable from the negative at all, but is instead positive precisely in its negativity, while conversely the negative operates as the expression of the positive. What I mean by this is that the positive, what I would call the kerygma, is something intrinsically unsettling and disruptive of our possessions and properties, both literally and metaphorically. The history of settler colonialism is a history of the conversion of common goods into private property, into objects acquired, used, and traded for the increase of one's material security. Similarly, the history of the church is the history of the conversion of common graces, 
not common grace in the sense of Reformed theology, but the graces of embodied existence, into the private property of the soul, into objects acquired for the increase of one's spiritual security. The history of modern imperial Christianity has been one long quest for both spiritual and material security, for the certainty that one is among the elect, destined for everlasting blessedness, and, God willing, for a taste of that bounty here and now. And so European Christians, in their insatiable thirst for ever more proof of their inviolable holiness, have colonized the world in God's name. And once they settled down, they colonized themselves, building ever more elaborate structures to demonstrate their fidelity. And if they could, they would colonize God in their Babylonian conviction that they, with all their technical training and market experience, truly know best how to distribute the goods of God's grace. The kerygma, or what I call the event, is the annihilation of this entire security system, what the Gospel of John calls the world, and what the Apostle Paul calls the present age. The annihilation goes deeper than just this system, however, because the problem is not some flaw in this particular form of security that could be repaired, thus producing an appropriate security no longer liable to critique. On the contrary, the event of the kerygma destroys security as such, and indeed it is, this, it is in this act of negation that the kerygma realizes its positive purpose, what I have elsewhere described as the act of placing us outside of ourselves. The event, however it confronts us, does not let us remain in our fabulated certainties, no matter how convincing the stories we have told ourselves to justify our ravenous pursuit of property, both human and divine. The event, when and where it happens, liberates us, even for just a moment, from this all-too-human inclination towards self-preservation, and opens us to the annihilation of ourselves that Paul calls new creation. And this brings me to what I think it means when we talk about salvation. I said above that speaking meaningfully of salvation has to satisfy three criteria. The salvation in question must be historicized, rematerialized, and deculturalized. I'll say a bit about each in the time I have left. First, and most importantly, I want to bring salvation back down to earth. I do not mean this in the banal sense that salvation also concerns our lives here and now. That much is a stock claim of traditional theology. What I mean instead is that salvation is exclusively about our lives here and now. As much as we may wish it were so, there is no salvation from suffering and death. The cognitive science research on the afterlife is compelling, particularly the experimental work of Jesse Baring and the theoretical explanation provided by K. Mitch Hodge, especially when combined with the anthropological research on the evolutionary development of ancient religions. To put it simply, some kind of afterlife belief is a nearly universal feature of all cultures and societies, and as Hodge compellingly shows, these afterlife beliefs are social in nature. They are, con they are concerned <clears throat> with the immortality of friends and family. We intuitively imagine others in the afterlife as being embodied, and thus able to continue to fulfill their social obligations with the living. 
This holds true even when people talk about heaven, even though the notion of having a physical form in some disembodied realm is nonsensical. The idea of bodily resurrection is the ultimate version of this, an afterlife that is so fully social that we regain our physical form and are able to continue our social lives in perpetuity. If we let all this go, what are we left with? If we dispense with the whole system of divine rewards and punishments, what are we being saved from? I would argue that we are not saved from suffering, from the final judgment, from hell, from annihilation, from the devil, or even from mortality. In other words, we are not saved from any of the traditional threats associated with religion. If we are saved from anything, we are saved from ourselves, saved from the illusion that we are able to secure ourselves, saved from the deluded attempt to preserve some mythical purity, saved from the desire to stabilize our identity and possess our future, saved from the internal compulsion to assert our freedom from others. This is what I mean when I say salvation should be historicized. To historicize salvation in this way also means we will rematerialize or despiritualize salvation. To be liberated from the prison of our self-enclosure means to be liberated for the insecurity, instability, and impurity of embodied relationships with others. If the old concept of salvation meant that one could be saved while actively engaging in and perpetuating unjust structures and relations of oppression and domination, salvation as I use it is something that occurs or does not occur in each particular moment. Salvation is always an event, and that means it is as unstable and unpossessable as our fragile mortality. I am drawing here on the early theological writings of Karl Barth, where he redefined election as an event in the present moment, something that is only ever true in the singular act of the here and now. Much like the parable in Matthew 25, we are saved in those moments when we welcome the stranger, visit the imprisoned, and feed the hungry. But likewise, we are damned when we fail to do these things. Every one of us is both the sheep and the goat, and we move in and out of these categories from one moment to the next, and like the parable, we do so for the most part entirely unconsciously. Finally, while salvation should be embodied, it must not be enculturated, by which I mean we should not confuse being saved with becoming part of a particular culture. There is no Christian culture, no divinely authorized form of life. There is no predefined list of normative actions that effect salvation or that represent being among the saved. Matthew 25 is a parable, not a law to be obeyed. One of the more ambiguous claims by the Apostle Paul is when he says in Romans that to be a child of God means that we are joint heirs with Christ. And in Galatians, he says that before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under a disciplinarian, like a minor. But God freed us from this paternalistic care and adopted us to be heirs who receive the same spirit that guided Jesus.
This idea of being co-heirs is hard to grasp, and churches generally gloss right over it in an effort to ensure proper obedience to Christ. But I would argue this obscure idea deserves substantially more attention than it usually is given, though not the kind of attention given in conservative reform circles. To be joint heirs with Christ and freed from every disciplinarian means, I would argue, that in faith we are freed from being told what to do and how to do it, freed from any normative guideline for how to live our lives, freed from the pressure to conform to any particular cultural framework. Salvation may look quite different from one person to the next. What saves me might damn you, which is a way of translating Paul's discussion of the strong and the weak. Indeed, the the dynamic nature of our existence means that what saves me one moment might damn me the next. This is simply what it means to be human. And if salvation means anything to me today, it means becoming ever more genuinely human. This has been The Podluck. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you are enjoying the episodes, then please take some time to rate and review as this helps the podluck be more visible to other people. If you would like to support the podluck, please visit our Patreon page. For as little as a dollar a month, you get access to a Slack channel where people are discussing this and other ideas. Join the conversation, share this episode or others online at the podluck podcast on Twitter or at podluck podcast on Instagram. This has been The Podluck. I'm your host, Megan Westra. Tune in next time as we dish up some more ideas about what it means to be saved. <laughs>